Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I am Elin Fermier. Hi there, listeners. Welcome to this October episode. We apologize for the delay, couple of weeks of delay. Work has been crazy here at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, but we are happy to be back with you and bring you an interview. Actually, first time that our co-host Elin runs an interview, and she interviewed a physician, Jakob Aljarde, back on the 11th of September. We hope you enjoy. Hi, dear listeners. Welcome. I'm sitting here today with Jakob Altgärde, infectious disease physician, currently working at Region Jönköping. And we are so happy to have you. I have also heard that you have been working a bit as a physician in Nepal as well, so we will touch on that. But we will also have a lot of questions about how it is to Uh, to do what you do, practice as a doctor in Sweden. So, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, the pleasure is all ours. I was wondering if you could briefly introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure, yeah. So I live in southern Sweden, just outside of Jönköping. And uh, over the last 10 years now, I've been working uh, both in Sweden and Nepal. And most recently, I worked in Nepal for two years. And quite recent then? Yeah, we came back four months ago. Okay, so it's still quite fresh, mm-hmm. everything from there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but how did you get into this line of work? When when did you start? I mean, it's a quite a long quite a long time you have to study to become a physician, I guess. Yes, that's true. So during my medicine school, my interest for global health challenges rose. And I had a chance to go to... A, to Nepal for an elective period of two months, where I followed the work in a rural mission hospital in the Nepali countryside. And that was an eye-opening, fantastic experience. And during my internship, I rotated in different departments here in Sweden, and I had an interest in a few different medical fields, but I became particularly interested in infectious diseases through the attentive approach doctors in the ID department um, gave to the complexity of illness. Later, I started my specialization training in infectious diseases, which lasted for five years. So is that when you came into contact with the whole AMR situation, or was that something that was discussed earlier in the education? Or It was discussed during medicine school as well, mm-hmm. um, but I've been working much more with it as a physician since I joined in the infectious diseases department. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine it's quite a big topic. I mean, so you're right now working in the clinic in Jönköping then as a hospital. Mm-hmm. So I think many listeners, including me, is very interested in how does a normal day, what does a normal day look like? How do you work? Do you meet patients? Yeah. So I work with patients suffering from infectious diseases, uh, and I meet both patients in our uh, outpatient department. That can be, for instance, HIV or tuberculosis cases, but I also meet admitted patients. A large part of my job is to support other doctors in ICU or emergency department, oncology department, or in primary health care centers 
in managing infectious diseases cases. And the main question is which antibiotic to use. Mm. That support is done both on the phone and in the more complex cases by seeing the patient in person. Mm. You're really meeting and communicating about patients all over the entire hospital. So it's not only as you're like infectious disease, you have you're spread all over Absolutely. the hospital, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have our own beds in our departments, mm-hmm. um, but we are very much involved also in other departments in the hospital. Yeah, I can imagine because infections, they do not just pop up in the infectious disease wards. You have mm-hmm. them everywhere, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I assume that this the resistance problem is something that then comes up in your everyday life. So how does it affect you? Does it affect your colleagues in any way? Is it is it getting trickier and trickier administering the rate antibiotics and the access to antibiotics understood is getting getting shorter and shorter in some cases? Yeah, compared to most other countries, Sweden has a very favorable situation regarding mm. antibiotic mm-hmm. resistance. Uh, yet there there are daily implications of antibiotic resistance in my job. Mm. And uh, thorough considerations are needed when I choose which antibiotic that would be the best choice for the patient in front of me. Mm. And quite often, the options can be limited due to the bacteria's resistance to drugs. Mm. Extended drug resistance is prompting longer hospitalizations, difficulties in discharge planning, etc., And the same bacteria pose a high risk, especially for cancer patients and neonatal patients, etc. Yeah, of course. And and the time consumption for monitoring multi-resistant bacteria are quite high. Mm. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, in Sweden, we are... We are very lucky to have the situation that we have. Uh, I guess the, our access and such is quite good. But I've heard recently that we have a shortage in penicillin, covipenin. Uh, right, yeah. Mm. A few, yeah, just recently there was a shortage. Right now in our region, we, we, it has been solved pretty well. But mm-hmm. from time to time, we have those difficulties, which may lead to situations where we need to treat with Second-line drug instead mm. of, of mm. our first-line drug, and that, mm. and that can be that can be quite a challenge. Yeah, I guess we still, in most cases, have quite a few options to choose from, as it is right now. But mm. that situation mm. is drastically changing, unfortunately. Mm. But do you feel like it has changed during your time as a physician during the years that you have worked? Have you seen a lot of changes in in the resistance patterns of the bacteria and how you treat? So antibiotic resistance is a silent pandemic with increasing spread worldwide. And globally, a lot has changed only during the years when I have done medical work. Antibiotic consumption has increased worldwide and pretty dramatically over the last two decades. That is partly good because more people now have access to antibiotics than previously. But Mm -hmm. we also know that about 50% of antibiotics are prescribed unnecessarily Mm. and inappropriately. So there is a massive global overconsumption of antibiotics, increasing the pace of resistance development. Mm. In Sweden, the development of antibiotic resistance is increasing slower than in many other countries, but the prognosis is still that it will increase several fold in the coming years. I think that public awareness has increased in the last few years, Mm. 
and the consumption of antibiotics per thousand inhabitants, especially in the youngest age group, has decreased dramatically in the previous decades through a successful program for the rational use of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But we also see advanced immune therapies allow for treatment of diseases that we had limited possibilities to treat just some years back. Mm-hmm. And these therapies also leads to new challenges uh, with opportunistic infections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to hear that we actually see a, a lower consumptions within the younger population. Mm. That is, I mean, that is very good. That I guess uh, all of this outreach that is made and trying to get the, the public aware is, is helping. <laughs> mm. Yes, I think it has been very, very helpful, both the guidelines for doctors as well as the mm. awareness has increased in the population. Mm. Yeah. yeah, because that is something I'm also very interested in. How you, how do you communicate about resistance uh, to patients? Is it something that is communicated at all or is it something that you talk about? I think these conversations are happening mainly at the primary care level. Because of the high-quality evidence-based guidelines and public health education in Sweden, what I hear from other physicians in primary health care is that nowadays, um, instead of asking to be given an antibiotic, patients ask whether they need it or not. Mm. Uh, I think there has been, in some cases, the attitude has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, in my setting, the conversation can be more about compliance with medication. That ah. is that the patient needs to take the whole course of treatment and not stop too early. Yeah, that I can imagine can be a problem because I guess if you're not aware about why you should eat all of it, you stop and you start to feel better. Mm. Uh, but I guess that is something that you're you're very good at communicating to the patients, I assume, as physicians. Yeah, some, sometimes it can be a challenge. But I think most times we are we are successful in convincing the patient to take the whole course of antibiotics mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. stopping too early might be a driver towards uh, more resistance. So um, that's an important important thing to remember. So it's it occurs less and less that you actually meet patients that that wants you to prescribe them something because I can imagine the feeling of being unaware of the situation, feeling sick, coming to a doctor, and really want to you know leave with something some kind of treatments something and then hearing that ah, it will heal by itself that that can be frustrating and for as you as doctors very hard to handle in a way i think it might not be as common as it used to be due to the public awareness that is relatively good in sweden when it comes to regarding antibiotic resistance mm-hmm. but I, but of course it's it still can happen mm. here as well Yeah, I'm happy to hear that it's not as as common as you might think. That that people are actually starting to understand that this is a indeed a growing problem that will affect them as well in the long end. I think I, I um, encounter more difficulties in in regarding communication when I work in Nepal. The situation is very different mm. there. So public awareness about antibiotic resistance is is pretty poor, I would say, in Nepal. Mm. So patient or their relatives relatives expect to get a prescription for antibiotics, even for mm-hmm. simple self-limiting viral diseases. Mm-hmm. And if they don't get it, they might go to the pharmacy and buy it without a prescription anyway. Yes, I guess that is a factor in Sweden that you can't really go and get it yourself. Yeah, so over-the-counter 
sell an antibiotic. It's not possible to to buy antibiotic in that way here. In Nepal, another challenge I think is that if the doctor runs his or her own setting, a private setting, the patient might not visit a physician again who chooses to prescribe antibiotic in a rational manner that does not meet the patient's mm. expectation. In that way, that doctor's clinic suffers financial loss mm-hmm. when correctly not prescribing antibiotics. That is a factor that I haven't thought about. But I, I think we should really get into your work in, in Nepal. We have already started a little bit now. But you talked briefly in the beginning of how you ended up going there. Would you mind to repeat that? How how did you end up working in Nepal? Right. My first trip to Nepal, 2009, and I was a medical student at the time. And I did a medical elective placement in a rural mission hospital in on the Nepali countryside. That was my first trip. And then mm-hmm. I've been back to Nepal for shorter periods, a few times during my internship and during my specialization training. But after I finished my specialization training, I started to work in Nepal for a bit of a longer time. And that's mm-hmm. the last two years now. You mentioned in the beginning that when you went there the first time, it was quite eye-opening to you. Yeah. In what way? What What was it that, that caught your interest for the mm. for Nepal? I see uh, quite a few other diseases in Nepal than I do in Sweden. That would not be common in Sweden, at least. There's quite a bit of the disease burden in Nepal that is closely linked to to poverty. There's still a quite large poor population. And just by being poor, for example, by using firewood inside uh, cooking food would lead to a lot of indoor pollution, which leads to lung disease and leads to burns. So that link between poverty and disease is, um, is pretty obvious there. Mm. And that's just one one of many examples of that. Mm. So it was eye-opening in different ways. And mm. uh, it was also a beautiful country to visit and uh, with a very friendly population, I would say. Uh, you felt at home from the beginning, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I did. Oh, that's super nice. But if we if we should talk a bit about so both differences but also similarities in how Nepal compared to Sweden work with the question of AMR and antibiotics and if we look at the more start with a more broader perspective if we talk more in general if we compare the countries mm-hmm. uh, what have you observed during your trips there So in Nepal there has been unregulated antibiotic use in agriculture where antibiotics have been used not only to treat sick animals, but also for growth promotion. Over-the-counter sale of antibiotics without prescription is widespread. It is the standard access point to antibiotics. And the general access to antibiotics might have saved lives of children with, for example, pneumonia in rural areas where no doctor is nearby. But it also leads to massive overconsumption of antibiotics inadequate dosing and inadequate length of treatment. People are buying antibiotics for simple self-limiting viral infections and are doing so without a prescription. Mm-hmm. And the infectious disease control measures are limited. Mm-hmm. And another thing that would differ from my setting in Sweden is that in Nepal, at least on the countryside, patients often travel far to reach healthcare settings and have often 
taking antibiotics before presentation, which might make the clinical picture less clear when they reach the hospital. Mm -hmm. An obvious huge difference is, of course, that we must remember that health expenditures, according to the World Bike, are 100 times greater per person per year in Sweden compared to Nepal. Mm -hmm. That is a big number. And and I can imagine that when we comparing countries like this can be quite tricky, I guess, since you forget that we have different points of where we act from. So when it comes to just like clean water and hygiene and stuff like this, I guess that it's very easy to forget that it looks very different, different places and that you want to you want to take what we in Sweden have and apply to to other countries straight away. And that doesn't really work, I guess. So a lot of patients then eat antibiotics before they actually even meet a doctor then. Yeah, I mean, they might they might have a long way to go to the hospital. Mm. Would would be costly and they mm. w- would not have governmental financial support for being on sick leave. Mm. So it, it might often affect your life more to be off work to go to the hospital. So mm. and that's just one of many reasons why I think that people might try to use antibiotics first before going to hospital. Mm. Yeah, I know, because I watched your um, panel discussion at Almedalen, and uh, then we can for sure link that uh, uh, under this episode if someone is interesting. It was a great uh, discussion. But I think you then talked about the fact that people eat antibiotics before they arrive to the hospital actually also skews the data on on the resistance patterns in the countries. Uh, yeah, have a, yeah. Mm, Yeah, that's correct. So when we want to culture bacteria, that's one of the most common microbiology tests, then it's very interesting, of course, to know how resistant are the bacteria in the community in order for us to construct guidelines in how to treat community-acquired infections. Mm. But in uh, many times, the patient has taken antibiotics before coming to the hospital. And if we, at first presentation, don't use cultures very much, we use them very much in Sweden, but mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say that every hospital in Nepal would do that at first presentation. And, and then maybe the patient gets another course of antibiotics. Mm. And when that one fails, when we have a treatment failure, then we do the culture. Mm. And the only bacteria we would find in that case would be very resistant. So mm. it might give a bias into the data that we have. And it looks like the bacteria are extremely resistant on a community level because it doesn't really give us information about the community acquired infections, mm. but more about complicated infections that hasn't responded to first or second line mm. treatment. It doesn't really give the, the correct picture. Yeah. That's so to speak. Oh, oh, that's super interesting. That more is maybe more on a, on a country level, how you can compare Sweden to Nepal. But if you compare your actual, the work you do in the hospital, how does the everyday life look different or s- similar? Yeah, so the mission hospital where I worked in Nepal is well organized and has uh, fair antibiotic access. Still, compared to the hospital where I work in Sweden, it has limited resources. And there are several differences between my job with bacterial infections in Sweden and Nepal, both in diagnosing and in treating. Speaking about the diagnostic tests, they mm. are often costly and results are slow in coming. 
And therefore, they are not used as much in Nepal as in Sweden, making the accessible local resistance data of bacteria scarce, mm. making the foundation for the doctor's decision-making less reliable. Mm. And there are differences in the way to treat bacterial infections as well. Due to internal hospital guidelines, I have reasonable cause to believe that antibiotics are used in a relatively rational way in the hospital where I have been working in Nepal. Uh, yet, even there, antibiotics are often prescribed unnecessarily, and the too much broad-spectrum antibiotics are used. Mm. And there are reasons for that, including limited diagnostic tests, as we mm. said, fear of treatment failure among doctors, limited access to ICU beds if the patient deteriorates, etc. Mm. And the lack of relevant local microbiology reports leads to difficulties in changing from the initial appropriate broad-spectrum antibiotics to a more specific narrow-spectrum antibiotic. Mm. And all of this, together with an already higher level of resistant bacteria in Nepal, gives the situation when we compare the countries where antibiotic resistance is a far worse problem in Nepal than in Sweden. Mm. But the tools to deal with the problem in Nepal are much more limited. Um, how do you... Are they... Because now we're referring back to your Almedalen panel again, but is the country working in any way to change this? Is there any measurements taken to to handle it? Yeah. There are intentional actions taken to lessen the impact of antibiotic resistance mm. in Nepal. For example, the National Action Plan mm. is such an example, and also the surveillance of bacteria in several centers all over the country where a number of key pathogens are monitored over time to get the surveillance of these pathogens and see how resistant they are or how mm. resistant they are. It's nice to hear that that at least something is happening, uh, even mm. if the situation is still very, very problematic. But you also talked briefly before about how the patients look at antibiotics is a bit different in Nepal compared to Sweden. Maybe not the same knowledge or... I would hope that public awareness regarding AMR would, would increase mm. in Nepal in the coming years. I think that would be would be helpful, mm. but also other structural, for example, often outside of a hospital, the pharmacy or the medical shop might not be linked to the hospital, mm-hmm. so mm. even to monitor how much antibiotic are prescribed mm. might be difficult there. So uh, that would also be one thing to hope for, mm. to have an integrated pharmacy in the hospitals yeah. would make it easier to see how much antibiotics are prescribed mm. and of what what kind. Those things that you maybe not really think about when you live in Sweden, it's so natural for us that the, the, that our pharmacists are they are connected with the hospital and mm. and such. Yeah. Super super interesting. Thank you so much. We are running out of time unfortunately. <laughs> I feel like we could have discussed this for a very very long time. So, but before before we before we leave, I just wanted to ask is there is there anything in particular you want to leave our audience with? Anything at all? The World Health Organization introduced the phrase no action today, no cure tomorrow, which I think is an important reminder. Mm-hmm. This topic needs would need far more attention than it gets. And this 
pandemic is far too silent. My job as a clinician is mainly at the patient level, but as a society, we would need to continue in our efforts in awareness and system change that prevent pressure toward resistance development. And to the audience, I would say, as someone who cares enough about this topic to share your time with us today, please continue to raise these concerns in your community. Wow, I think that was that was very inspiring. And yes, I, I agree. You who listen, please continue to to share knowledge and and awareness. Thank you so much, Jacob, for taking your time and, and sitting here talking with me. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all the listeners. And we go right back to the studio to Eva. Thank you. Welcome back from the interview. So, Elin. Yes. How how did it go? How did you feel doing your first interview for the podcast? I, I think it went well, but that was a lot due to the excellent guests that we had. Jacob was very nice to interview and he was very, very patient with me. <laughs> but I had a lot of fun. It was it was it was great. I know that you had an interest in particular to interview a physician, mm. someone that works day in, day out with infectious diseases and in the clinics and mm. you know, getting to interview someone that has experience both in Sweden and in another country like mm-hmm, Nepal. Mm-hmm. I think it was very interesting. Yes, to get that perspective on two different, very, very different countries. Right. It was super interesting. This is one of the things that I take out of the interview is learning about these differences mm. between the work that he does here in Sweden mm. and the work that he has done in Nepal, especially in a rural area in Nepal. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and for me, it was also... I mean, you talk a lot about infectious diseases and antibiotics and we need to treat them, but how does it really work? What do they do in the hospitals? How do they how do they communicate with patients? Because I mean, sometimes when I at work at least and I work with my bacterial strains and I do my testing and stuff, I forget that these strains come from actual patients, you know. Yeah, so it was for me it was quite eye opening just to hear how they work. Yeah, it touches you a little bit when you are just working in the lab and mm. what you see is a tube with some bacteria, but it yeah, actually exactly. comes from somewhere yeah. and it has done something if you were with clinical strains. Mm. Mm. I think that it made me reflect on it while listening to this interview was the fact that being an infectious diseases physician seems like such a broad specialization. Mm-hmm. And I guess, yeah, I mean, that goes without saying, you know, that an infectious disease can be both a bacterial infection or a viral infection or a fungal infection. You know, the doctors that work with this, they see all these different pathologies, etiologies, uh, origins, different yes. manifestations, mm-hmm. because I guess a gastroenteritis is not the same as a skin infection mm-hmm. or bone infection, implant infection. Mm-hmm. So they have to have a lot of knowledge about different pathogens, about different treatments, Mm -hmm. and also how he was saying that they support basically the entire hospital. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because infections might happen, and most likely will happen anywhere across the hospital as well, right? Exactly. And and that's, it's not only in the infections ward, it's everywhere, in all the wards, in in the entire hospital. So it's just, that that was very fascinating to me. And how they must work very good together, the different like instances in the hospital. Yeah, right. And also that, you know, I really like that you asked him, like, 
if during his education, if he got exposed to resistance or AMR mm. problem early on or maybe only then later during the specialization, I'm happy to have heard that actually during their education, they did get at least some education on mm -hmm. it or mm -hmm. some information of this happening, mm -hmm. which I think it's good because as we were saying, these infectious diseases might happen all across the hospital. So mm. people working in other parts of the medical sector should at least have a basic understanding. Yeah, yeah, it, for right? sure. I also think it was a bit humbling to hear that because I think many of us here who lives in Sweden think that we are, and as you said, we have a nice situation going for us, but there is still problems. And I think they're getting closer and closer, if you understand what I mean, with the shortages of like penicillin, for example, and also that he said that sometimes they don't have the first line antibiotics available and they have to get to, for the second one. And this is actually happening here as well, as yeah. we speak. And I think that's important to to remember that we are... Yeah, the problem is closer to us than we might imagine. Yes, and I think also the fact that the reasons why we might not have access to the right antibiotics at the right time might be different in different parts of the world, mm -hmm. but we need to think that the consequences might be similar. Yeah. You know, It might be because there's no production of it, or it might be because there is not availability in the country you are in, mm. or because there haven't been enough money in the system to supply for the right antibiotic, but, you know, the consequences will be there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then his perspective on Nepal was also super interesting and to hear how it differs and something that really I was really thinking about is the surveillance program that they have and how that is affected by the fact that people take antibiotics before arriving to the hospital and mm -hmm. how that puts a bias into what kind of infections that are believed to, to exist within the population. You mean the bacterial pathogens, yeah, exactly. right? Like that they're already kind of shaped yeah, by exactly. what is happening mm. in before they come to mm, the hospital. Mm. I, that was actually a very interesting take mm -hmm. on it that I don't think we have talked a lot no. about before here. I never thought about that before, but of course that will that will be reflected in the data. If the pathogens are exposed to antibiotics before you get to the hospital and then you get another dose of a different antibiotic that will affect the selection of what you will have mm -hmm. in the body and that will affect the data and and the whole surveillance program. And the effects overall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that actually kind of is related to something we're going to talk in the news section mm -hmm. as well. I'm very happy that we were able to get this clinical and clinician's perspective yes. on it. It's the first time that we have a physician that works with infectious diseases mm. and especially with this broader perspective mm -hmm. of Sweden and, and Nepal, which was very nice. Mm -hmm. So... Thank you so much for bringing that into the studio and yeah. from uh, suggesting that we do this. And mm. I'm really looking forward to the next interviews that you will do in the future. I'm sure they're going to be great and people are going to enjoy them as much as they enjoyed this one. I hope so, at least. I think with that, we can move on to our news section for this month, which yeah. comes, uh, comes in hot, I would say. Yeah, I agree. See, See you, you there. there. Welcome to this news for the month of October. So we are going to start with um, the more lab-based paper mm -hmm. and article that we're bringing today. And Ellen, is mm -hmm. you are going to present us this paper. So what did you read this month? Yes, I read a paper named Systematic Analysis of Drug Combinations Against Gram-Positive Bacteria. Mm -hmm. And this paper was published in Nature Microbiology, the 28th of September. 
And I must say that I picked this paper a little bit of egoistic reasons since I work with combination therapies. Mm-hmm. But I work mainly in gram negatives and I am don't have a lot of knowledge about combination therapy and gram positives. So this mm-hmm. was very exciting to me. Cool. So just to clarify, combination therapy is when we combine drugs with each other to see if they have a better effect when we treat with two or more. And this is very important since we are living now in a society where the development of new antibiotics is very slow, but resistance development is very fast. So the hope is that by combining old antibiotics with other stuff or with new drugs, we might see better treatment options or get more treatment options at least. So in this paper, they have profiled drug combinations against three gram-positive bacterial species. They have a Bacillus subtilis, which is a model organism. But then they also have two strains of Staphylococcus aureus and one strain of Streptococcus pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And these are the more clinically relevant strains, I would say. Mm -hmm. By using high throughput screening, they have looked at a total of 57 antibiotics and eight bioactive molecules. And they have combined all of these against all four strains. And this ended up being around 8,000 combinations. That is a lot of combinations. <laughs> We have a big data set. There's mm-hmm. a lot of data. And they have picked drugs from different chemical classes targeting different cellular processes. Mm-hmm. So they have a very broad range to what they are looking into and mm-hmm. looking at, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. All combinations were tested with the golden standard broth microdilution. Mm-hmm. method and they also measured OD during the growth so the optical density so how much cells they have. I assume they didn't do this in 10 milliliter cultures right? No they did it in micro tighter plates <laughs> <laughs> so a bit more effective way of doing this but still a lot of lab lot. work. Oy, yeah. oy, oy. And from this data they were able to decide if a combination was synergistic, which means that the combination works better than a single treatment, or antagonistic, which means that the single treatment works better than the combination, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or neutral. And with neutral, I assume that there is none of the options is better or worse. Yeah, than I the guess other. what is called an additive effect, yeah, exactly. right? That mm-hmm. is just like all of them. If the effect just put together is not better. Yeah, than, exactly. No. And they have done a lot of modeling using this data and it's quite complex and I will not dive too deep into these methods right now. If you are interested in it, I think you should really read the paper because it is very interesting and they have also collected all the data into a web page mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. you can browse through it and look through it. So if you want to do that, uh, just go to the paper and they have a link right there. Mm-hmm. But just briefly mentioning some of the results that they found, they could conclude that the interactions that they saw were very species-specific. And there was a lot of difference when comparing these results from the gram-positive bacteria with gram-negative bacteria because a similar study has been done on Mm gram-negatives. Only a small number of the interactions were conserved between gram-positive and gram-negatives. And I think this might be a little expected because the cell wall of the gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria is very different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this will affect like cell surface and drug uptake that will differ between Mm -hmm. them. But still, interesting results. Mm -hmm. They also found 150 new synergies in Staphylococcus aureus, Mm -hmm. which is good. And they deep-dived a bit into the Staph aureus situation and looked at some combinations of non-antibiotics with 62 drugs with antibacterial activity. Mm -hmm. And then they were also able to find a lot of new synergies, Mm -hmm. but also some antagonism 
Mm-hmm. And that is also very important mm-hmm. because you want to know if a combination works better, but also if it's less effective, because then you really don't want to treat with that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's also very, very important to know. Mm-hmm. It could be also interesting. I'm thinking that there could be some positive sides of understanding if there's true antagonism in some mm-hmm. senses, because sometimes you don't want an antibiotic to affect a particular bacteria, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. If you are thinking about preserving the microbiome mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. concepts like this, I I would think that maybe there is a benefit to exploit in this understanding of antagonism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That you can use a combination that works for a specific species. Since, mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. we're saying here that there is a lot of conservation on the species specificity yeah. of mm-hmm. these combinations or relationships, maybe we can find combinations that work targeting a specific bacteria mm. and then they work worse towards a specific other species of bacteria. So then mm. we can preserve that mm-hmm. one for sure. in the microbiome or something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Or If you find a specific combination that works better against gram negatives, and then you can preserve the gram positive normal flora. Ah, Stuff like that. Something like that. Yeah, Yeah, it could be. They have done a lot of work. There are more results that can be explored in this paper. I will not go too deep (laughs) into that because then we'll be talking for an hour. (laughs) But overall, they have created this amazing big data set that can for sure be used to build on and make new studies mm-hmm. and look at the interactions that they found. So I think this is a amazing step into exploring combination therapy even more because it is quite an unexplored field so far. Yeah, so I see it also like an exploratory paper mm. of sorts. We are not getting very zoom in into these interactions or knowing mm. a lot about the specificities of these interactions, but it's more about getting a general view mm. on it and then some glimpses of things that we might want to study further yeah. and see how they mm. might be used. Yeah, and they, they looked into a specific non-antibiotic, the Ticagrelor, found 13 new synergies with different antibiotics for Staphaureus. Only that is a huge find. So, so, I mean, there's a lot to this paper and there's a lot more that can be done. Cool. Then we hope that some other people picked up on it and mm-hmm. they can, you know, deepen further on, on some of these and that it really serves as a basis for, for future insights yeah. into these combinations. And hopefully people like you that are working in the lab with combinations mm-hmm. can also take on, on from these yeah. results. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you so much, Ellen, for Thank this you. article. And I'm interested to hear what you have been diving into this month. Yes. And that's... Uh, That's deep. (laughs) Let's just say it like that. Yeah, so it was deep. I chose not a scientific research article per se this month. I chose an open opinion article of sorts published in the journal Humanities and Social Sciences Communications by Klaas Kischel as a sole author. So he's posing his his ideas. And I have to say before we continue on this that uh, we had the lovely pleasure of interviewing him for the podcast back in our episode number 13. Lucky or unlucky number, depending who you are. Mm -hmm. We are going to link below to that episode if you want to learn more about class's mm-hmm. work and his uh, history in particular, then you can dive deeper there. But yeah, we're talking about his recent article published on 28th of September. And the title is The Antibiocene Towards an Eco-Social Analysis of Humanities Antimicrobial Footprint. Oh, wow. Yes. So class is a historian, mm. <laughs> as you can maybe mm-hmm. guess from that uh, title and the kind of journal that it's been published on. And it's it's a deep 
thought process this article and it has a lot of things to consider and a lot of examples and a lot of citations and it's it's complex but it is also very beautiful to think about AMR in different ways. Mm, and this is what sure. I love about the social sciences and me being a biologist and coming from the natural sciences and that I'm challenged with thinking about a certain concept in a different way. And AMR is so big, so vast and complex and mm. has deep-rooted consequences in the world we live in today that I think having people like class presenting these ideas and these n different ways of thinking could be really valuable. And it's nice For to talk sure. about it as yes. well. So I guess what we can talk about from this paper is this concept that he presents here, which is the anti-biocene. Okay. Which that's kind of the start. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So how is the anti-biocene described in this article and post by class here is that the anti-biocene is seen as a new geological era characterized by a profound planetary shift of microbial genomes, cells and ecosystems in response to multiple accelerating anthropogenic antimicrobial exposures. All right. I look at your face and you are like, no, no. what are we talking about here? Um, <laughs> but it sounds beautiful in a philosophic way. It is, in a sense, philosophical, but it's also deeply biological. Absolutely, Because, yes. I mean, for decades now, we've been talking about living in the Anthropocene, right? Mm -hmm. With the Anthropocene is seen as the new, most recent geological epoch, mm -hmm. for, for to call it like that, where we are seeing the consequences of the activity of the humans on the planetary mm -hmm. boundaries, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And what classes is posing here is that AMR is one of these major signals of the action of humans in the planet because we've been accelerating the exposure to antimicrobials mm. that our microbial commons, which would be the microbiome mm. that forms the earth and lives mm. in us and around us, have been exposed to these pressures because of how we have been relating to antimicrobials for that the past sense. decades, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. In this article... What I found very interesting from the point of view of us that we talk about AMR, the in, the out, and we focus a lot on the immediate impact of AMR in our daily lives, which could be seen as, you know, impacts in the health sector mm -hmm. when we cannot treat our patients anymore and they will die of a resistant infection. And also how antibiotics are very ingrained in, for example, food production mm -hmm. as well, right? Mm -hmm. If we cannot treat our animals or if we cannot use antibiotics in the way that we've been doing in we are going to affect the production of food that you know sustains the planet and these are like very short term views of AMR mm -hmm. and what is i think wonderful about the paper and this idea of the antibiotics that class is presenting here is that we ought to think about if we shift the way we think about AMR, mm. which is not only about these very short term effects, but mm. also how it would look like if we look forward and we look in a larger time scale. Mm. So class's idea is that if I actually reconceptualize AMR as this major signal of the antibiocene, it would allow us to do three main things. Okay. One would be to engage with the social science body of work that deals with the multi-species relationship within the Anthropocene, mm -hmm. which, as we were saying, the Anthropocene is this idea that 
is a new epoch, yeah. geological epoch, mm -hmm. where humans have been affecting how the planet mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is reacting to what we're doing, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we've been having troubles with working in a special temporal way with this because geological time is very different than human time, yeah. in a mm -hmm. sense. Like mm -hmm. the scales are completely different. Yeah, yeah. So here is posed that if we actually use antimicrobial resistance and the response to the selective pressure that these microbes have been for a really long time, we can in-scale the Anthropocene. So kind of give it a, a shape in, in the time and space. And I think it was really cool because if you think about it time-wise, on the concept of microbial evolution, mm -hmm. we have two really diametrically opposite timescales. Mm -hmm. One is that microbes have been on Earth for a really long time, and yeah. they are the living organism that has been evolving and being here for the longest time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at the same time, they have such a fast generational time that mm. evolution happens at a much faster time scale mm -hmm. than for us humans. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can, if we understand well or better mm. how humans using antimicrobials have had an effect in the microbial like, ecologies and how this has been shaped by the time scale that microbes work at both really long oh. term because then they have already mm -hmm. been evolving for a really long time and the very short term which is they are very able to adapt and react fast to things that are happening and the changes mm -hmm. that are happening in their environments then we will be able to in the social sciences relate to the effects of the Anthropocene in a different way and in a better way. So that's one of the things that he's presenting. And I mean, that makes sense. And also the fact that we as humans have a very limited way of looking at time. Yeah, right. So maybe we can use this knowledge of the microbe world mm -hmm. and how we have been affecting it yeah. to conceptualize better the, these Anthropocene and mm -hmm, the biocene mm -hmm. effects. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. one of the things that mm -hmm, he's mm -hmm. arguing, that if we frame this uh, AMR mm -hmm. as one of the of the signals of the uh, antibiocene. Another thing that he is talking about, which is for the time that we've known that AMR is it's a problem and it has effects in our lives, we've been focusing our policies in very short-term solutions. And this, in reality, makes sense because what you want to avoid is yeah, that the next patient dies. And it's also a way to manage an emergency. And we've been reacting to this resistant problem in an emergency way. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. maybe if we shift how we think about it from emergency response to a more long-term management, we can actually think about microbiome stewardship instead of antibiotic stewardship. Because oh. when we look on the longer term, mm. what we want to preserve really is the microbial um, life that is available and the microbial commons, as they are being called in, yeah. this, mm. in this concept. And right now, what we have is very short-term solutions to this vision of this short-term problem. Mm -hmm. But we mm -hmm. haven't really yet thought about how this will look like in the future. We talk a lot about the apocalypse and how it will look if we, we might end up in a place where we don't have any antibiotics available mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. used because either the bacteria are completely resistant mm -hmm. or they are not available for whatever reason. But have we actually thought about how would this look like? Right, so. so we are more putting out fires mm -hmm. than actually like looking into who we c how we can manage a more long-term situation. 
Mm -hmm. If you think about it, as he poses it, the genetic and phenotypic traits of a given infection are actually the result of all these long timescale pressures that all the micros have been exposed to, which might take many forms. It can be the antibiotic exposure, but it can be also the access to water, the access to sanitation, mm. the presence of biocides in the environment, the use of heavy metals in certain mm. um, industries, right? Yeah. Mm. And if we are able to see how this is all interconnected, the microbiome and the microbiota that it's available or it's there in the world, mm -hmm. and all the exposures that have happened, back in time and throughout the planet, then we can think about how we really need to prioritize in policy, not only those solutions that are pocketed and limited in time, like it might be antibiotic stewardship mm -hmm, to use mm -hmm. antibiotics in the clinics or how we use one or the other, but more on the One Health spectrum, yeah. mm -hmm. which we mm -hmm. talked a lot about, but it yeah, doesn't yeah, but seem like there is so much action on this mm. real One Health aspect of seeing the human health and the animal health together with the environmental health. And the last but not least important part that classes is posing that this paradigm shift and shift on thinking on AMR uh, might bring to us is that we would be able to pay more attention to the variations in risk that happen in geographical and social scales when it comes to AMR, because we know about that. It's not the same, the risk that an individual has to be affected by AMR in Sweden than in Nepal, as mm -hmm. we were saying yeah, yeah. In, mm -hmm. in the interview with uh, Jacob. Mm -hmm. So if we think about this broader aspect of AMR mm -hmm. as how these antimicrobial pressures have been shaping the microbial world, mm -hmm. we might be able to then understand better how these differences and inequalities are and then target them in a better way as well. So in the paper, class is also suggesting some ways that we might actually go about this and understand this in a better way. Mm -hmm. And he suggests that we can actually look at this at sites of hyper exposure, as he calls it. So if we will have more data, if we will have more investigations comparing sites with a lot of antimicrobial pollution, like it could be landfills or where was the treatment plants or parts of the world with intensive feed operations that use a lot of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. We might be able to get a better understanding on these greater effects of mm -hmm. the antimicrobial pressures that the way that we've been relating to antimicrobials we've been putting on the microbial world. Mm. And then from there, use that data to inform policy that actually puts at the center of it this more managing resistance mm. rather than reacting and trying to prevent resistance. And I agree with that because I don't think resistance is something we can solve. No, and I mean... It feels like a lot of this is about shifting the perspective, right? On how we look at it, how we look at the problem or the situation. And, oh, that was very interesting. Yeah, so it's complex. I yeah. tried my best to simplify it in a sense. Uh, it's a wonderful read, but it's not an easy read because mm. there is a lot of terms that have to do with social sciences. Yeah. And I appreciate, I think, that class has actually written this paper for the social sciences mm -hmm. scholarship mm -hmm. in mind, you know, and I think it's a very good job of like if someone that doesn't really know about what AMR is and they maybe they work on the Anthropocene or they work on these more humanities aspects of the effect of humans in our planetary history, they might be able to understand, you know, how does this fall into what's going on 
mm. other Anthropocene-related changes, like it could be climate change mm. or other things. Mm. So I I like that he brings this aspect to this completely different area yes. of knowledge. You know. Yeah, and I mean, it's I think it's so important that we discuss the AMR problem in different scientific languages, right? Not only in how we think about it in this natural science lab-based kind of way, but that we do it in different ways and reach, because we, as we say a lot, we need everyone yeah. on board on this ship. <laughs> I really, I mean, I don't know if I did a good job of explaining you this, did. but what I think is wonderful is thinking differently, you know, thinking about the microbiome, the planetary mm. microbiome, which would mean all the bacteria that mm. are living everywhere in different forms. Mm. They get exposed to antimicrobials in different ways and mm. they have done so for the last thousands of years mm. also in different ways because, you know, antimicrobials have been there since microbes exist. Mm. We just have been used them in a different way and that have put up sel- different selective mm. pressures. And I think shifting this idea that the way to manage AMR falls in individual responsibility mm. towards a more holistic sort of thing, even though that's like an a buzzword, holistic view of like how we relate to our planet, mm. I think can be useful, even though it makes things more complex. And we're always thinking about how we reframe AMR or frame AMR in a way that is simple and mm. simpler and even more simple mm. to understand. I think going the other way and make it even more complex and having this even bigger picture, mm. it's also worth the while. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree. And I, I really think that you did a great job explaining this because it really, <laughs> it opened a lot of new perspectives for me. And I think this is something that I will have to, you know, think about yeah. and let, let's... Uh, let it sink in a exactly little bit. Exactly, sink in a little I bit. I hope that someone out there also got something out of it. Uh, as I said, you guys can access the paper. Yeah. It's mm. open access and... It's wonderful. I'm sure you can also engage with class on his social media mm-hmm. and online because he's quite active if you have anything that you want to, you know, explore mm. further with him. But I really like, you know, that these historians and people that think differently and have mm. a different, you know, background, yeah. they put their time to really develop theories. I think that's about it. amazing. Yeah. We need that. Different perspectives. Yeah. So that's it for this month. I think by now my brain has exploded a little bit, <laughs> but I guess I will I will uh, put it back together, sew it back together. Yes. <laughs> the work that is needed. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks yes, to go back hopefully sure. to our normal schedule of the first Monday of every month. Yes. But also we are working on the World Antimicrobial Awareness Week, which is coming up now in November. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned yes. for our presence out there. And thank mm-hmm. you so much for listening to us one more month. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>